children can be dismissed for children's church at this time. Um, just gather over there, ages four to six. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter four. You guys can just go ahead and go with the kids whenever you're ready. We'll pray for you. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter four is where we're going to be today. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 11. It's page 1003 in the chair Bibles, if you're using one of those. Hebrews 4, verse 11 says this, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to lift up our children now as they um, hear your word taught. We pray that it would take root in their hearts. Father, that... Um, week after week as they hear your word, as they go to you in prayer, as they sit under the instruction of, of adults, Father, that this would be the means by which you save them. Father, we pray that you would change their hearts, that they would go from self-worship to Christ-worship. Lord, we pray that for ourselves as well. We pray this morning as we think about this, this topic of rest what it means to rest. God, I pray that we would be a church at rest in the finished work of Christ. That we would not be frantically searching for our own way. Father, change us this morning and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. What does it mean to rest? What comes to your mind when you think about resting? Now, I know for me, sometimes it just means taking a good long nap, right? For others, maybe it's relaxing on the couch or in a chair reading a good book. There are a lot of ideas in the secular world about rest. Believe me, I know. If you don't already know, this is going to blow your mind, but I got my bachelor's degree in outdoor recreation. Seriously. That's an actual degree. <clears throat> Most of my major was about how to make money off people when they are seeking to get away from work. Okay? So I distinctly remember sitting in uh, some of my college classes where we would seriously debate the definition of terms like leisure and recreation and play. How about that for an academic pursuit, right? Some of, you, some of you engineers are like, man, I'm kicking myself, man. All this math and science. You could have you just played all, all your college career like I did. Um, yeah, we spent hours discussing whether certain activities should be considered valid forms of recreation or sport. I mean, I remember sitting in these classes just talking about, well, should this be considered? What, like, what is recreation? What is a sport? 
Um, when we look around our world, it's really no surprise that we have entire college degrees dedicated to recreation and relaxation because, quite frankly, as a culture, we're pretty obsessed with it. Just think about all the money put into the entertainment and recreation industries. Think of all the vacation resorts, cruise lines, traveling opportunities, water parks, community centers, the city park right down the street from you, all the different sports you can participate in. And those are just some of the more active forms of recreation. We haven't even touched the entertainment industry with all the movie theaters, video stores, performance arts, TV and Internet content, along with any other uh, hobbies and interests a person might have. It is safe to say that when it comes to recreation and leisure, humans have no shortage of ideas. Now, let me say up front, I'm not going to preach a sermon against any of these activities or industries. I'm certainly not saying that to participate in recreational activities is sinful or anything of that sort. So do not hear me say that. I participate and desire to participate in many of these activities, and I firmly believe they can be done to the glory of God. It can be spiritually edifying. But going back to my college days, when I think back on those college classroom discussions, I don't remember what conclusions we came to, if any, but I do remember sitting there and realizing that my major, which seemed so simple and unacademic, yet it hadn't been affected by the fall. I'm sorry, it had been affected by the fall. It had not escaped the effects of the fall. I remember being confronted with the fact that when it comes to what we do after work, the unbeliever does not know what it means to rest. Now, I know there's a difference between rest and recreation, right? But our consumer-based, financially-driven culture tells us that when we cease from working, we deserve to rest. But this worldly understanding of rest is almost always framed in purely physical terms. And it's a far cry from the spiritual practice of rest. Because even the way that most of us rest, we become consumers. Our hearts are still in a state of discontentment. We're unsatisfied until we are consuming some sort of activity or entertainment. I wonder if many Christians know what it means to rest. What does it mean to put down the textbook and find physical and spiritual refreshment in the Word of God? What does it mean to take, each, to take a day each week and set it aside for worship and family? What does it mean to lay your head on your pillow every night in faith in a sovereign God who is able to sustain the universe and your life when you close your eyes to sleep? What does it mean to have a heart that is content with God's providence no matter what he calls you to do? Because you know that his promises are good and firm and can be trusted. Do you know what it means to wake up every day and go to the Lord in quiet prayer and end each day in quiet prayer knowing that the things left undone can be finished tomorrow? in the grace that God so faithfully supplies. Now, another caveat to this message. 
One thing I do not want to encourage today is slothfulness, laziness. I'm not saying that we don't need to work. I think that will become clear. I'm not saying we don't need to work hard and push ourselves and wear ourselves out for the glory of God and the good of others. But I am saying that when we neglect proper, Christ-centered, spiritual rest, we are actually working against those things that we are spending ourselves to accomplish. So here's my proposition. I'll give it right up front. Striving to enter God's rest leads to a life of faithful obedience to God's promises. Striving to enter God's rest leads to a life of faithful obedience to God's promises. We're going to look in Hebrews chapter 4. We're really going to be in Hebrews 3 and 4, but we're going to use 4 verses 11 and really verse 11 as a launching pad. Then we're going to back up and kind of trace what Hebrews 3 and 4 is, is all about. Because when we look at Hebrews 4 verse 11, we read this. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now what we've just done is just picked up the end of the argument. He just made a long argument, and that's the end. Strive to enter that rest. Now what is that rest? So the question that I'm going to ask, there's going to be two questions. What is the promise of rest? And how has the promise of rest been fulfilled? Okay? What is the promise of rest? How has that promise been fulfilled? So number one, what is the promise of rest? To rest in God is to live by faith in his promises. In verse 11, we read that we are to strive to enter that rest. Now, what is that rest that the author is talking about? What kind of rest is it? Now, to see that, we have to go back to the beginning of chapter 3. So go back to the beginning of Hebrews chapter 3, and we see the writer is making this argument. He's saying, Jesus is greater than Moses, okay? Chapters 1 and 2 of Hebrews, he's saying, Jesus is greater than the angels. We get to chapter 3, he's going to say, Jesus is greater than Moses. Now, why is Jesus greater than Moses? It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to show it. Why is Jesus greater than Moses? Because Moses was a servant in God's house, but Jesus is the son in God's house. This is the biblical argument he's making. Moses acted as a servant, but Jesus came as, the, as a son. And the son in the house is always greater than the servant. Okay, That's his point. Now, according to verse 6 in chapter 3, we too are included in this household of Christ if we hold our faith to the end. So there's this focus here on the end. This is a reoccurring theme in the book of Hebrews. Our faith is shown to be genuine if and when we hold our faith to the end. He's going to say this multiple times. That's why in chapter 3, verse 12, Look at chapter 3, verse 12. The writer reminds us, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. So we are called to exhort one another every day to continue in the faith and not to fall back into sinful disobedience. 
Then we get to verse 14. He repeats himself. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to what? The end. Firm to the end. Okay. We get it, writer of Hebrews, whoever you mysteriously are, that we'll never know the answer to. Luke. Um, <laughs> that's I'm throwing that in there. Um, we get it, though. We need to hold our confidence in Christ firm to the end, right? That's the point. But what does that mean, okay? So the, but the author is going to show us what it means to hold it firm to the end. And he's going to use this analogy of rest. So that's where this idea of rest comes in. If we're going to hold our confidence firm in Christ, we've got to rest. And we're going to see this throughout, throughout this passage. There's, there's this, this paradox here. Hold firm your confidence in Christ. That takes work. That takes effort. That takes a grip on something. But at the same time, you're resting as well. Even in my proposition, we see it. Strive and rest. Strive to enter God's rest. There's this tension. There's this work. There's this effort. But at the same time, there's, a, there's this holy and good rest. Now, starting in verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7, the writer quotes from Psalm 95. This is the psalm that Eric read earlier. This is a psalm where King David is writing about the incident of rebellion at the edge of the promised land. And we're going to talk about this. We're going to read this in a minute from Numbers. But what does David say about this incident? So we're going to look at his commentary first, and then we're going to go back into Numbers, and we're going to read the story. Look at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, what's David referring to? He's talking about the promised land. What rest is he talking about? The rest of entering the promised land. The land of Canaan into which he had promised to bring the Israelites after their exodus from Egypt. Now let's go back to Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 13, so we can better understand what's going on. All the way back to the book of Numbers. You want to keep your finger there in Hebrews if you can. Remember what's happened. God has delivered his people from Egypt. They had the exodus. They left. You know, the, the, the ten plagues came. Uh, Pharaoh was like, no, you can't go. No, you can't go. No, you can't go. So the tenth plague, he's like, okay, you can go. They leave. The, the Egyptians follow them. God parts the Red Sea. They're going all throughout the wilderness for years and years and years. God gives them um, the law. God gives them uh, the instructions for the tabernacle, all that stuff. does amazing things. They come to the promised land. They're on the edge of the land. All they have to do is go in, destroy 
the people that live there, and it's there. So God has already promised to give that to them. So they're at the edge of the land. They send in spies to go spy it out, okay, just like anybody who knows what they're doing would do. They've got to see what they're up against, right? So we come to Numbers 13, verse 25. It says this, At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword. Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now skip down to verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead body shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones... Who you said would become a prey, I will bring in. And they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you and your dead bodies, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years. And shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. So the Israelites led out of Egypt... By Moses, they came to the promised land. Twelve men sent into Canaan to spy it out. When they came back, only two of them, Joshua and Caleb, believed that God would keep his promise by giving them the land. The other ten feared the giants and did not want to risk their lives in obedience to God. For their unbelief, God sends the entire nation back into the wilderness for 40 years. 
until everyone who disobeyed 20 years old and up is dead. Now, it's easy for us to read this story in our modern context and think, man, it's kind of an overreaction, right? I mean, is that really necessary, God? I mean, aren't these people just acting like anyone else would who was about to go into battle against giants? What's the big deal? So what was so wicked about the Israelites in refusing to take the promised land? Well, flip back to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16. The writer of Hebrews is going to tell us what was so wicked about this. Verse 16, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So according to Hebrews, the problem with the Israelites was their disobedience and unbelief. They failed to take God at his word. Now remember that God had already promised to give them the land. He had promised to be their God and to fight for them and destroy their enemies and give them rest and peace on every side. But when they got to the edge of the land and were about to step out in faith and do exactly what God had commanded them to do and what God had promised to do for them, they were filled with fear and unbelief. And they were willing to trade God's promises, his promised rest, for bondage and slavery. They were ready to turn around and go all the way back to Egypt. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, they said. Would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? Now, before we go further, think about the insanity of of sin for a moment. The Israelites had seen all the plagues God had brought on the Egyptians. They knew God's wrath. They saw God part the Red Sea right in front of them. They had followed a pillar of cloud and fire as they made their way through the desert. They saw God turn bitter water into drinkable water. They had seen God provide water from a rock and manna from heaven. They had seen the power and majesty of God revealed at Mount Sinai in the giving of the law. They had built a tabernacle and carried it with them all these years and worshipped God in the midst of their camp and saw his glory fill the tabernacle. They had sat under the teaching of the priests and recounted many times the many ways that God had preserved them and fought for them as they made their way through the desert to get them to the place that they were at. And they were right on the edge of all that God had promised. And yet, after all that, knowing in their heads all the ways that God had been faithful, they still rebelled. That's insanity, right? 
That's nuts. And yet, isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we do? When the circumstances of our life aren't playing out the way that we thought they would, when we are in a difficult situation, when the pressure's on, when we feel overwhelmed, how many times do we want to return to Egypt? How many times do we find ourselves turning away from God's promises, failing to remember that He cares for us and has provided for us and has made provision before the foundation of the world, and we long to go back to Egypt. You see, the opposite of rest, and this is key in this passage throughout chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews, the opposite of rest, the opposite of resting in God is not work. You've got to get that. The opposite of rest is not work. It's unfaithful disobedience. That's key. The opposite of rest is not work. It's unfaithful disobedience. If you're here and you're not striving to enter God's rest, you are living in unfaithful disobedience, just like the Israelites did. Sometimes when we think about what it means to rest, we automatically contrast rest with work. It's not always a wrong comparison, okay? Because the idea of works in Scripture is usually a negative idea, right? This idea of working for God's favor. Uh, you read Paul and you see that works is, you know, Paul hammers works, you know? Like, yes, good works have been prepared for us, but many times... He contrasts works with faith, right? There's faith apart from works. You can't work your way to God or work to earn God's favor or work to be saved. But here in Hebrews, the comparison is not resting in God versus works. The comparison is resting in God versus sinful disobedience. Even in chapter 4, verse 10, we are told... Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. But in this passage and in these chapters as a whole, the idea of resting in the promises of God is not contrasted with working. It's contrasted over and over with rebellion and disobedience. Look back to chapter 3, verse 8. This incident at the promised land, it's called hardening your hearts. And rebellion, that's chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 10, they always go astray in their heart. Chapter 3, verse 12, be careful not to be evil or unbelieving or to fall away. Chapter 3, verse 13, don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 3.15, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 3.16, those who heard rebelled. 3.19, they were unable to enter because of unbelief. 4.6, they failed to enter because of disobedience. So over and over and over again, we are told, if you're not resting, you're living in unfaithful 
disobedience. We see the reason they did not enter into God's rest was not because they kept on working. Work, as defined before the fall, is a good thing, right? God gave Adam the job of working the ground before the fall. Working hard with your hands and your mind and doing it with all of your might is a good, necessary, and holy thing to do. We should work. You should work hard. Whatever you do, do it with all of your might. So don't think that if you're working or if you feel the pressure of work in your life, that you are not resting in the promises of God. I am not preaching a message here of laziness and slothfulness and procrastination. That's a different sermon, a different message for a different time. But what were the Israelites missing? It's simple. They did not obey God because they did not believe that he would keep his promises. When they looked at their circumstances, they grumbled and complained. They thought they knew what was best for themselves. Rather than following God out of faithful obedience, they rebelled and sought to establish their own way of finding rest. Let's appoint ourselves a leader and go back into bondage. One of the things uh, Kelly and I have done over the past several years is, is to keep a record of all the ways that God has provided for our family and blessed us. I say all the ways. There's no way to keep track of all the ways. We don't even know all the ways that God has blessed us. But we actually have a document where we have specifically recorded the times where God has taken care of us in amazing ways. And to go back and look at that and to update it again and again, you would think that I would have no problem trusting God and believing that He is a God that cares for me and knows how to provide for me and my family because I have a record, a written record of how God has provided. I've outlined with detail His providence in our lives and how He has provided financially how he has provided just circumstantially and places to live and friendships that we've made and people that we have known and how all of these things have worked together to bring us to where we are. We had like $7 in our checking account throughout almost all of seminary. It was crazy. Yet we paid off all of our debt in seminary and had no seminary debt. It's crazy. And the way that God's provided over and over since then has been amazing. And yet, I still get angry when it seems like we don't have enough money in the bank. I still get discontent when I think about my current life situation. I am still unsatisfied with so many aspects of my life and many times... I have been willing to trade God's promises for bondage and slavery. In those times, my heart is not at rest. In those times, my heart is searching, frantically searching for a way out of my difficult circumstances. 
and I am willing to trade all the goodness of God that I can read, that I wrote down, that I remember. I'm willing to trade all of that for what I perceive to be safety and security. Returning to bondage always seems easiest in that moment, doesn't it? When we read the account of the Israelites, and they wanted to go back to Egypt, I'm thinking, you just traveled a huge distance to get to where you are. And you want to go back to Egypt? But in the moment, that made sense to them. That was better than what God had promised them. And yet, despite my rebellious heart, God has continued to show himself faithful. And even here in this text, we will see how his promise of rest still stands for his people. So let's ask the second question. How has the promise of rest been fulfilled? How has the promise of rest been fulfilled? It's been fulfilled in several ways, but we're just going to hit one of them today. The message of Christ has become the good news. Now, what do I mean by that? We come to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1, we, 1 and 2, we read that the promise of entering God's rest still stands. Which means, of course, that we need to drop everything right now and go to Canaan, right? The promise of rest still stands. Okay, we got to go. Let's go to Canaan, right? No, that's not the point. Uh, what does he mean that the promise of rest still stands? In verse 2 he writes, For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed, we who have believed enter that rest. So the rest that God provides is still available for those who believe what? The good news. He actually calls it the good news. What was the good news for the Israelites? What they failed to trust was the good news. The word of God that was preached to them in the wilderness. The promises that he would care for them and give them victory and forgive them and be merciful to them. They didn't believe God. They murmured in their troubles, wanted to turn back to Egypt rather than follow God. This is their unbelief and disobedience. And likewise, on this side of the cross where we are, it becomes our disobedience as well. When we rebel against the promises of God in Christ. When we work as though our lives and jobs and families are ultimately dependent upon our own efforts, we are rebelling against the good news of Jesus. Why? Because when we are united to Christ by faith, we enter the rest that God has provided. To be united to Christ by faith, is to enter into God's promised rest. That's the key. The Israelites failed to believe God's promises. 
And today, God's promises are still available. The promise of that rest is still here. It is obtained. We can get that rest. We can have it. We can enter into it by faith in Christ, the one who gave his life for our sins. To be united to Christ by faith is to enter into God's promised rest. Look at verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. This rest is available today to those who believe. Look down at verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. I'm not suggesting again that if you've been working hard at something, then you are not resting. That's not what this passage means. There is a way to work hard that is good and honoring to Christ. But there is also a way to work that glorifies yourself, seeks the praise of men and the things of this world. All of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. And all of them are counted as ours when we are united with Him in His death and resurrection. To be in Christ is to be at rest. To be in Christ is to be at rest. Don't believe the lies of this world that try to deceive us into thinking that this is all there is. And to truly live, to truly be alive is to get as much consuming in as we can in this life. Don't think for a moment that your life or family or ministry is dependent ultimately on you. Yes, work. Yes, work hard. Think hard. But do it in the strength that God supplies. Do it with humility and patience. Do it with confidence in the one who gives you the breath and the strength to do it. Do it in community with others, remembering that you are not alone and remembering that all you have, you have been given by Christ and it can all be taken away in an instant. To find true rest is to live by faith in the promises of God. And these promises are displayed most fully in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what does this mean practically for us? We talk about all this. It's just a bunch of theological jumble, basically. Rest. Rest in Christ. Uh, you know, obey. Don't be unfaithful. Rest. Trust. Believe his promises. What does it mean? Well, perhaps some of you here today have never experienced spiritual rest. Maybe all you've ever known is that constant aching and discontentment and restlessness when you consider your life. You've sought for rest and contentment in so many different places and in so many different ways. If I could just get that one relationship I will be at rest. That's all I need. Or if I could just get that one possession or that one degree or that one job, then I'll be at rest. 
If I could just give the appearance of spirituality and fool enough people into thinking I am a Christian while at the same time continuing in my secret sin, then I can maintain some kind of contentment. But let's listen as we read on through our passage, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Some of you might think you believe the gospel because you have been around the church for many years and done lots of Christian things and because you have convinced so many people with your performance. But the gospel cuts through all of that. It pierces into our souls. It reveals the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. The gospel sheds light on our rebellion because in order to believe it, we have to be willing to stop what we are doing and rest in the finished work of Christ. Did you get that? The gospel sheds light on our rebellion because in order to believe it, you have to stop and find rest in someone else other than you. That's how we know that we are still dead in our sins. If and when our hearts are constantly, frantically searching, searching, searching for anything, something to hold on to, rather than resting, rather than a spiritual resting in the finished work of Christ. Hear the words of Christ today. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You don't have to bear the weight of that sin anymore. You can find rest this morning. You don't have to keep searching, just moving from one thing to the next, seeking some kind of fulfillment, some kind of identity. Your identity can be found in Christ, the one who died for you, the one who was raised from the dead, and the one who is calling out to you now, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. I urge you to go to Christ today. Find your rest in Him. Perhaps some of you are living in fear. How can God provide for my future? Questions that plague you sound like this. How am I going to find a job? How will I make enough money to provide for myself or my family? Or perhaps there's a specific sin plaguing your life and has been for some time. And to think about giving it up seems so far-fetched and impossible because of the grip it has on your heart. 
or maybe you're facing extremely difficult circumstances like the death of a loved one or watching someone you love be destroyed by sickness or sinful choices. These are the things that fill our lives and consume our thoughts. And many times we convince ourselves that we're just trying to be good stewards, right? We're trying to be good providers. I, I'm, I'm worried, I'm anxious about, about job and money, but I'm really just trying to be a good steward. I'm just trying to, 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 to provide. And those things are good. But you have to ask the question, are you living in unfaithful disobedience to the promises of God? Are you living in unfaithful disobedience to the promises of God? Is your heart never at rest? Is your physical body worn out due to overwork, lack of sleep? Many of us face illness and instability because our hearts and minds and bodies are constantly seeking and planning and stretching and giving and pushing and being spent. And many times the things we are doing are good things. Good things. But remember, the gospel cuts through all that stuff. It's living. It's active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. It reveals the, the thoughts and intentions of your heart. And today, I want to encourage you to stop seeking your rest and comfort in the things of this world and to rest in our perfect Savior who has made and continues to make provision for all that we need and gives us the future grace to continue to hold our confession firm to the end. Listen to Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 6. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. So many of us go through these seasons of life where we have big decisions to make. We don't know what to do. We don't know how God's going to provide. We don't know logistically how things are going to work out. And man, we spend so much of our time and our energy and our thinking just in just racking our brains, trying to figure these things out. But listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, 
O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. The word of Christ is not far from you today. Go to him. Let him take your burdens and all the circumstances weighing you down. Remember that Christ has already made provision for the circumstances in your life. If he cares for the birds of the air and the grass of the field, how much more do you think he cares for you? And how much more is he working for your good in every situation? God's provision for your life is already in place. He is sovereign and good, and we are his children. We have no reason to doubt. We have no reason to fear. We have every reason to trust in his good and holy providence. And we look forward to the day when we can rest for all eternity in his presence. But that rest, that eternal rest, starts today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the rest that has been secured for us in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be a church at rest. Lord, the danger here is that we become lazy. Lord, guard us against that. I pray that we would work hard. I pray that we would strive. I pray that we would um, spend ourselves for your glory and for your good, but we would do all of that in the strength that you supply. We would do that with hearts that are full, overflowing with thanksgiving, overflowing with the gospel. Father, let us be a people at rest this morning resting in the finished work of Christ, the one who gave his life for us. And we know that what you started, you are faithful to complete in us. We thank you for that, God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.